Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 16, Soul Meets Body. This episode picks up where Dr. Glenn Peoples and I left off in episode 15, discussing biblical objections to his view of the human soul called physicalism. I'm going to skip any intro material and I'm going to wait until the next episode to play the next promo in my rotation. So let me just recap where we left off. We briefly discussed a couple of challenges to Glenn's positive biblical case for physicalism. We then discussed another metaphysical objection to his view and talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and what it means to have been created in God's image. We talked about loving God with all our soul, and we talked about the word piercing as far as the division of spirit and soul. We looked at mediums, familiar spirits, and seeming appearances of the dead, followed by contrasts between body and spirit, including the request that at time of death God would receive my spirit. We talked about what it means to speak of one's soul doing something or going somewhere, and what it means for God to restore my soul. Finally, we looked at what it means that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and the fact that believers have eternal life. It was at that point that we uh, left off in last episode, and in this episode we begin to look at the more commonly pointed to passages in attempting to argue against physicalism. So with that recap out of the way, let's resume our interview. Alright, so uh, now here's where I think it starts to get good. And actually, I'm going to start with a, with a question that um, uh, is of my own making. Uh, many of my listeners might not be very familiar with the view that you and I share. I brought this up briefly a little bit ago uh, about the end times called uh, preterism. As preterists, I think that we both share a similar interpretation of uh, the millennium spoken about in Revelation 24, those who come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. It actually says, John says, says I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says that they came to life and reigned with, with Christ for a thousand years. Now, the question that might immediately rise in the minds of some people um, is if humans are material and have no immaterial soul, then what, it is, what does it mean that John saw the souls of those who had been beheaded? But, uh, you know, while I'd like to know the answer to that question, my question is actually a little different. As a, as a fellow preterist, I suspect that you understand those who came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years similarly to, to me, which is not the elect raised from the grave at the beginning of the millennium as premillennialists believe, but rather as those raised to spiritual life through faith, either during the tribulation itself around AD 70 or or throughout the millennium. Um, uh, In fact, I I would suspect most preterists like us would concur with Anthony Hokema, I think is maybe how his name is pronounced, who wrote of all millennialists that, quote, they interpret the millennium as describing the present reign of the souls of deceased believers with Christ in heaven. Now, so my question is, if they don't, if, if they don't have immaterial souls, how can they be said to reign with Christ for that thousand years? Once dead, when they cease to be and thus cease to reign? Yeah, see, I don't share Anthony, and uh, I, like you, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, <laughs> but I don't share his view at all, obviously, because I don't believe that there are souls in heaven. Um, so I can't believe that that's what the millennium is. Um, yeah, now, so as you say, there are two questions there. One is, is, is what on earth are these souls doing? 
after people have been beheaded uh, if if physicalism is true and and secondly what is this millennial reign and mm. how can they have it if they're dead right. well these are the same souls because um, John sees these souls twice um, earlier he saw them under the altar and they cried out to God you know to be avenged for the way that they've been treated and God said yeah just wait a little bit longer it'll happen uh, basically um, it's chapter the great six of 20th, right yeah yeah the great 20th century scholar of apocalyptic literature, R.H. Uh, Charles, noted of John uh, in, in, this, in the Apocalypse or the Book of Revelation, um, and I quote, while he writes in Greek, he thinks in Hebrew, and the thought has naturally affected the vehicle of expression, end quote. So he's using, he may as well have written this in Hebrew, just because of the figures of speech and the language that he uses. It's very, very Old Testament. And in Old Testament Hebrew, to talk about someone's soul, and I've covered this a few times, True. is is to talk about them. Uh, uh, but just as an exercise for your listeners or for you, do a word search. Uh, pick whatever version you like, as long as it's fairly literal, so it will use the word soul. Pick, uh, do a word search for the phrase soul of in the Old Testament, or, or the phrase souls of. Because that's that's the phrase that John uses here, you know, the souls of those who, you know, so on and so forth. Use a King James version actually, because it uses the word soul more often than other translations do. The phrase is used about thirty times in this way. Uh, here are a few examples. In Genesis, Genesis forty-six: all the souls of the house of Jacob which came into Egypt were three score and ten. Or one Samuel eighteen verse one: it came to pass when he had made it made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Well, I think it means that Jonathan loved David as himself. Mm. Uh, Proverbs 10.3, The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, it is literally to starve to death, but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. The idea is not that God will let their body be hungry, but not their soul. The soul of the righteous here just means the righteous. And I'm not going to multiply examples. It's, it's, yeah, right. a, it's a Jewish idiom. Um, now look at this example in the book of Revelation where, where John sees the souls of those who had been murdered by the state, essentially. And it's hard to come up with, and this is an, an illustration I used in, in a podcast on, 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 on physicalism, it's hard to come up with a, a good modern parallel to this. But this one works. Let's try to Give it, give it a chance anyway. Imagine that your close friend has been murdered, and his murderer is now on trial, and you're standing there looking at the photograph of your friend. Now, your friend that you can see in this photo turns to you and says, how long? How long until my killer is brought to justice? And you say, it won't be long now. He's on trial. It'll all be over soon. Now, that's not literally true, of course, because your friend is, is dead, and he can't. He can't talk to you. But then neither is the stuff that makes up an apocalyptic vision literally true either. Sure. The point is you're not seeing a ghost. You're actually seeing your friend as though he were alive, asking you when things will be put right. And I think this is basically what John is seeing in the vision as well. He's seeing the people who had been unjustly killed alive pleading for justice. Now, you mentioned the fact that we both hold to a view called preterism. That's true, but preterism is is not something that you have to hold to the exclusion of all other views. Sure. Um, well, it's not really a view. It's a method of interpreting Scripture, and it's not the only way to read Scripture. Um, I'm familiar, and you may be too, with, with 
with a way of reading, especially apocalyptic literature and especially the book of Revelation and also Daniel and some of the prophets. That's called idealism. Mm. Uh, it's, now, idealism is the view that what we're seeing here is not necessarily a chronology of events, but great spiritual truths being given to us in a kind of story, it's almost like a, a comic strip or a cartoon. Uh, not to trivialize it, but you get the idea. Sure. Now, this is the only part of the Bible where the phrase thousand years is applied to the reign of those in Christ. Now, I don't think that it refers to a period of time at all. I just think it refers to a state of being. And I also think that this makes sense of part of what we read here. Remember, in Revelation 20, the same passage that you're quoting says that Satan is bound for that whole 1,000-year period, and he cannot deceive the nations at all. Well, if this, and I know that a lot of preterists, Anthony Hoekemer said this, a lot of preterists believe this, that that the whole the whole reign of the saints and the reign of Christ uh, began with Christ's first advent and goes all the way until the second advent. A lot of post-millennialists and preterists believe that I don't. Mm. Now, because Satan is supposed to be bound for that entire period and completely unable to deceive the nations. Well, if that were the case, then what's going on in the world? <laughs> because for 2,000 years, a lot of people have been very deceived. Uh, and they still are. But... If the picture of a 1,000-year reign refers to it as a spiritual metaphor and it refers to a state of being of being one of the elect, which is what I believe, then it makes sense that Satan would be, would be bound for a 1,000 years because Satan can't deceive anyone who is part of that 1,000-year reign. So I think what we need to do is stop thinking about this image as chronology and we should be interpreting it as... And I know this sounds a bit airy-fairy, a bit sort of ethereal. <laughs> the meaning is spiritual. Okay, The meaning is not literal. It's not a literal series of events being spelled out to us that we've got to interpret as you know, referring to something that's going to occur chronologically. I think that the thousand-year reign is something that we all take part in by virtue of being part of the elect. It's not necessarily something that has to endure for a thousand years or even for a long period of time. It's something that we have by virtue of being the people of God. Okay. I, I understand. Now, I don't want to get into a debate about it because I, 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 t I don't agree with some of the um, points that you made that lead you to interpret this in an idealistic way. Uh, so I don't want to get into a debate about that. But what I would what I would like you to do, if possible, and if you can't, if, if you don't, that's that's okay. But put yourself in the shoes of a of a non-millennialist like myself who believes that we are in the millennium right now, that it is a period of time. Um, mm. Uh, how, it, do you think that physicalism is compatible with that view, uh, with that view of the millennium, um, which describes uh, the souls who were beheaded or whatever coming to life and reigning with with Christ during this time? Um, maybe. <laughs> okay. I mean, I mean, you could say that this refers to. Well, oh, I mean, it would depend what you think the rain is. Mm. I mean, do you think that the rain is what we have as the church on earth, or do you think it's something that we take part in now and also we continue to do when we're in heaven? I mean, I think the rain ultimately is the reign of Christ. Agreed. And we share in that by virtue of being in Christ. Yes. Um, I just, I, I'm not persuaded that this is enough to say that you have to be conscious and, and able to experience every second of that rain. Because, I mean, if you interpret the reign of, the reign of Christ as, as 
And incidentally, I consider myself an amillennialist when it comes to the millennium, precisely because I don't think it's a period of time. Okay. But we, we won't go into that. Sure. But I mean, if you think that it is a period of time, then you have to believe that this reign of Christ will one day come to an end, because this yes. same passage talks about it having a beginning and an end. No, I don't believe it will ever come to an end. Well, it does. We are told that Christ will hand over the kingdom to his father, though. That's true, but I don't think we will ever stop sharing in that reign, or or even necessarily that Christ will give it up. It's just that he'll put himself under his father. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Well, uh, like I said, I don't want to go too far. (laughs) Maybe I'll have you on. Yeah, yeah, that could take us all over the place. (laughs) Sure. All right, well, I I think that all of that fairly well covers the less often pointed to kinds of biblical arguments against your view. And while I'm sure that my listeners could come up with a whole host of others probably, I think that they'd fall into the the kinds of categories that that we've just looked at. So what I want to do now is is move on to the big ones, the ones that are most often pointed to when somebody wants to uh, point to a proof text uh, that our immaterial soul goes to heaven when we die. So Luke 23:43, a passage I'm sure you're very familiar with, um, depicts Jesus saying to the penitent thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, doesn't yeah. this suggest that the thief's soul would go to heaven that very day? Um, yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what suggests, what suggests itself to one person doesn't necessarily suggest itself to another, but that certainly suggests itself as a way of understanding that. And if dualism were true, that would be the right way to make sense of it, and it would, you know, it certainly commends itself to a dualist reading. But I don't think it's the only way to read it. Okay. Um, I mean, every view, even a view that is well supported by just about all of the evidence, is going to have to contend with what scientists call recalcitrant evidence, which means evidence that is anomalous or doesn't seem to fit, and you have to make sense of it as best you can. And I think this is one of those texts. I think, before I tell you what I think, put yourself in the shoes of the criminal. In fact, this is an example, this is a way of reading the of thinking about it, that Peter van Inwagen suggests. He said, put yourself in the shoes or sandals of, of the criminal, as it may be, and imagine that Jesus has just said to you, today, this very day, you're going to be with me in paradise. And then you close your eyes, and then you open them again immediately, and there you are in paradise. You're, you're not on the cross, you're in glory, and there's Jesus right there with you. Now, you would say to yourself, wow, he was telling the truth, and this is amazing. But then imagine that somehow you managed to find out that a hundred million years had transpired Hmm. between Jesus saying that to you and you opening your eyes. Now, what would you do? Would you fly into a rage and say, wait a minute, he lied? (laughs) Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, if... If Jesus, if physicalism were true and Jesus had wanted to tell you the literal truth, what would he have said? Well, he could have said, look, I'll tell you the truth this very day. Um, you're going to close your eyes and open them and be with me again, and it's going to seem like it's happening straight away, but actually a hundred million years has passed in the interim. I mean, that would be kind of silly. Sure. There would be very little point in, in doing that. I mean, I think what he said here was not so much theological, although it was, but it was pastoral. It was, you're going to be with me really soon, as far as you're concerned, at least. And he was. Uh, And that's exactly what a physicalist believes will happen. Now, some people might think, well, that makes Jesus out to be a liar. Well, I I just don't think it does. I think it it portrays Jesus as saying the most pastorally helpful uh, thing that he could, and which is true as far as the the criminal's experience goes. So that's argument one. Okay. There is another kind of argument that I'm hesitant to use just because... It attracts, 
well, it, in my experience anyway, it attracts negative attention. Mm. Uh, it, it attracts just the wrong kind of reaction. People sort of scoff and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe what you're doing to, to Scripture. But because of what I think I know, I, I present it as what I think is a good argument. In Greek, the, ter- the word for today is semenon. Or at least that's the word that's used here for today or this day, semenon. Uh, uh, and this is something that a rather controversial New Testament scholar, controversial for his theology, not for his exegesis, uh, Ethelbert Bullinger points out in his analytical concordance of the Greek New Testament, or is an analytical lexicon, I think it's lexicon actually. But he points out that every other time the word semenon is used in the New Testament, it belongs to the verb that comes before it. And and in the English, just as in the Greek, the word that comes before it is, I say to you, or I say, rather, that's the verb. Now, if that is true, then that would mean that Jesus is saying, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Now, this attracts some very heated responses. Um, one of the responses I hear, but I have absolutely no time for, is, but that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say about this passage. <laughs> right. So what? Maybe they're right. <laughs> Forget right. it. Move on. You know. Uh, another one is that would be pointless. It would portray Jesus as wasting words, um, you know, saying something obvious. Now, I say to you today. Well, everyone knows that he was he was saying it that day. Why would he say such a thing? Well, firstly, they weren't necessarily Jesus' exact words. They were the words of Luke. So he could he had the time to compose this in in, in any way that he saw fit. More, more to the point, it's not pointless. In fact, God speaks this way in the Old Testament, where he says things like, I declare among you this day, that's such and such and such and such. Now, no one said, wait a minute, it's kind of obvious that you're telling us this day. Um, it was kind of a way of making it solemn. Like, I'm telling you right now, uh, you better listen to this. This is really important. Uh, in fact, in, I believe it's Codex, Sin- no, Codex Vaticanus, and this really ruffles some people's feathers when it comes to the field of textual criticism because it's it's an ancient Greek, well, compared to other Greek manuscripts that we have, it's an ancient Greek manuscript of Luke 23, and it has what looks like a comma at this point. Huh. There's been a whole bunch of discussion on the Internet, like well, one, one apologetics website that I've discovered anyway, saying, look, this can't possibly be a comma uh, doesn't really look like other commas do, and the spacing's not quite right. Well, I mean, the reality is punctuation and spacing isn't always consistent in ancient Greek manuscripts. It's just not. Now, I'm prepared to say that maybe, just maybe, in this one text where a number of people believe that there are exegetical reasons to say that there is a comma there, maybe it's just a coincidence that there's an ancient Greek manuscript that appears to show a comma there. That's possible, but it's very interesting. Sure. Um, but and now I know, and perhaps a more plausible response to this line of argument is to say, "Look, amen legosoi means assuredly I say to you." That's a phrase that appears quite a large number of times in the New Testament, and where it appears elsewhere, a comma appears after that phrase. That's actually what I was going to um, bring up. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what we actually have here is, is a conflict of two observable and demonstrably true facts. One is that elsewhere where the phrase amen legosoi appears is a comma after that phrase. 
The other fact is that every time the word semenon appears, it belongs to the phrase that comes before it. Now, which rule takes priority? Yeah. I mean, you can someone from each side could say, look, you're begging the question. No, so you're special pleading. You're you're committing special pleading if you say that this should be the one exception. But it it has to be the exception to one of those rules. Yeah. Uh, which which one? I I don't know. Uh, now, as I said, I, I don't need this grammatical argument because I think that the argument from experience is perfectly adequate. But it's just a matter of fact that this argument exists and it deserves to be taken seriously. So I think if either one of these arguments is good, then this text does not deny dualism because it doesn't say anything at all about the timing of when one, one will actually be in paradise, but it certainly doesn't necessitate dualism. Now, some will think that this is awkward, this is just me trying to get out of a sticky situation, and yes, it is, because it's a text <laughs> that appears to, because it's a text that appears to militate against my position, so I need some explanation of it. But I think the evidence is quite good for the grammatical argument, and I think that the rationale for the argument from experience is perfectly plausible. And I think that this is the way that we would think, uh, this is the way, anyway, that I, as a physicalist, think about death. I think that when I die, I will experience meeting the Lord. Yeah. And I say that, I say that believing that, in fact, I will be asleep you know, for however long it takes for Jesus to come back. Sure. Yeah, and, you know, let me, let me first just say that, you know, whether it's the Trinity or whether it's Calvinism or whether it's any other view that we might hold, there are some passages which, uh, plain and simply seem to be difficult ones. And so I don't think the fact that this is difficult for physicalism is, is, uh, proof of anything. So I agree with you there. And I also agree with the, with the, uh, experiential argument. You know, um, what Jesus is clearly trying to do is, is not give some, um, you know, theological discourse or, or, or answer, uh, or, or explain philosophy of mind to the thief on the cross. He's trying to comfort him and say, yes, you will be with me. And, and from his perspective, it would be today. So I have absolutely no problem buying that argument. Um, I do, I don't, however, buy the comma argument, but that's okay because I buy the first argument. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. If one fails, you've still got the other one. Exactly right. So. But they, they, they can't both be true because they cancel each other out. Correct. Because the first thing. The first argument presupposes the traditional punctuation, whereas the second argument says, okay, but maybe that's wrong, because maybe the punctuation should be different. So it could be one or the other, but not both. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. All right. So now, in writing on this passage, one of the arguments that you also made in favor of understanding this as a reference to the resurrection and not to the intermediate state is you mentioned that paradise is connected with the new earth and the resurrection, and that since the thief would die immediately and, and uh, would die and immediately cease being conscious and then arise at the resurrection, he would, from his perspective, that day be in paradise, which, like I said, elsewhere is connected with the new earth. Now, I'm inclined to find that argument persuasive. However, in Second Corinthians 12, Paul writes of a man caught up into paradise. And it wouldn't seem that this could possibly be a reference to the resurrection. Um, after all, he knew of a man who was caught up in the paradise. And, and, and actually, this is another passage commonly pointed to in arguing against your view. Because here, here's what Paul writes. Mm. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, if Jesus told the thief on the cross that from his perspective he would be with Christ that day in paradise, how the resurrection, how was this man that Paul was speaking of caught up to the resurrection temporarily? But more to the point, 
As a friend of mine wrote, Paul's description presupposes the possibility that one might exist outside of the physical body. For if the person of the apostle could have experienced a third heaven outside of the body, that would denote a recognition of non-physical existence. So what my friend is saying is that Paul recognized the possibility of disembodied existence in heaven. And he goes on to say that if Paul was a physicalist, he would not have viewed this as a possibility. Now, I know that there's two arguments there, but, but how would you respond to that? Number one, how could somebody have been caught up into the resurrection if that's what paradise is? Um, and two, uh, how, how, can it, how can he have done so outside of the body? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I understand the point of the argument. Now, I've written five points about this, about this text all by itself, and that, that was the basis of a, of, of a rather substantial blog entry of mine, such as is my fascination with the passage, because I think it's, I mean, whether I would, whether I were a dualist or not, I think I would find this passage um, titillating. And it doesn't reveal <laughs> it doesn't reveal much, but it's what it reveals is pretty pretty strange. Yes. Um, the context is that Paul is explaining that he will not boast or take glory in himself and his own achievements. He's not worthy of that boasting, according to him. And in passing, he gives an example of someone else's encounter with God, which he says is worthy of, of boasting about. He says, and you've you've quoted the passage there. Now, I know that most commentators believe that Paul was speaking about his own experiences 14 years earlier on the road to Damascus. Now, that's just a fact. If you look through the commentaries, this is what people are, people believe. Hmm. And I, I, if, if that's true, of course, then he wasn't taken out of his body because he wasn't taken out of his body on the road to Damascus. He was just given a vision. True. Um, now, of course, that doesn't account for the language being used. This is just to tell you this is what a lot of people think. Hmm. Um, now, if this majority opinion is correct, then the question of, a, of an out-of-body experience doesn't arise and there's nothing to answer. Um, however, I realize that you know, a lot of people don't believe that this is what Paul is referring to. Now, I'm not sure which version you were quoting from. Were you quoting from the New Test- uh, Sorry, the New International Version? New American Standard. Right. Because in, in the New International Version, it says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. Now, those words that I stressed, whether you picked up on that or not, are not in the original. Hmm. But, But putting them there, I think, substantially changes the meaning of the text. Now, how much depth I should go into at this point, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I want to I want to briefly explain the impact uh, of the of the way that the NIV has added those phrases. But there's another argument that I want to use as well. Um, that's my first argument. Now, now the inference that some people draw from this text, or at least from this particular translation and any other similar translation, is that Paul knows somebody, or Paul is somebody. Take your pick; it doesn't really matter who was taken up to heaven, but he's not sure if that person was taken up to heaven bodily or if that person's body died and the soul left it behind and the soul went to heaven without a body only to return bringing the body back to life later so that the man could tell other people. I don't think it's true for, well, because of two possible, well, I don't think it's true because I'm a physicalist, <laughs> but I have, I have two possible ways of justifying my stance when it comes to this passage. The first reply it doesn't raise any translation issues. The first reply is this. Why does Paul refer to this event as a vision? 
Remember, he says, I will go on to discuss visions and revelations. Mm. And bam, this is, this is his example. Why does he call it a vision? Now, if the man went to some place and was able to see it because he was actually there, then it wasn't a vision. It was, was you know, I guess, an observation. Yeah, right. Uh, but Paul shows some uncertainty about what actually took place. Again, if we rely on the NIV or some other modern version. He has two possibilities in mind. Either the man physically went there, or the man went there without being bodily present. Now, the word ektos can mean without. It doesn't mean outside of the body. Mm. It just it means something like sans. You know, I went there sans my body, uh, which is Latin as we use that word today. Now, in the former scenario, it wouldn't have been a vision. It would have been more like a visit. But Paul is talking about something that could well have been a vision according to him, which leaves a second possibility. It seems perfectly reasonable to me to talk this way about having a vision of another place and seeing things as though you're actually there, as going there, but not bodily going there. Mm. Would this be kind of like... I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know, I think if, if I if I recall correctly, John says that he was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I think that what he's saying there is that he was given a vision of the day. Yeah, I don't think he I don't think he went anywhere at all. I just think that he was in the spirit in the sense that God's spirit, as it were, took possession of his faculties and showed him something, uh, you know, in, involuntary, as far as he was concerned. Now, the fact that Paul is prepared to countenance the possibility that this might have been a vision, although he's not sure, he shows some ambivalence, suggests that his reference to the man going somewhere, but not actually bodily going there, might well have been a vision rather than an out-of-body trip, as some people believe. Mm. Now, this approach is correct. Then, of course, Paul is telling us that he knew a man 14 years ago who was taken to paradise, but he doesn't know if he actually went there or if he was just given visions without uh, being bodily taken there. Well, if you don't mind me interjecting, if if that's... Um, if, if that's what's going on, uh, and if paradise is a reference to the resurrection, how could Paul have even entertained the possibility that he, in, in, that this person, whether himself or some other third party, actually physically went to the resurrection? Yeah, well, I think it's synonymous with the resurrection. I think it's, um, what we will receive at the resurrection, but I take your point. Um, I think that Paul's use of the word paradise here is, well, it's relevant to comment on for just that reason. The way that the biblical writers use the word paradise or paradisos is important. It's used in Genesis 2.8 and elsewhere in, in the Greek Old Testament, you know, the Septuagint, to refer to the Garden of Eden. It's used uh, to refer to the eschatological restoration that God will bring about in Isaiah 51. And it's used again in Revelation 2.7 in connection with the Tree of Life, which uh, it says will be present in, on the new earth. But in Scripture, now I know that in, in some theological schemes, paradise is said to be a, a, an immaterial place, but in Scripture, the word isn't used that way. Right. It's used uh, to refer to Eden, you know, the way that earth should be and the way that earth would be in the future. Because it's a future state of affairs, I think it's more likely that it's a vision, unless the man were... Uh, I don't know how I would put it, miraculously taken to the future and, and then brought back. And I don't think it's necessary that Paul be certain about what's possible and what's not either. I mean, if Paul believed that this was some kind of miraculous event that he's struggling to understand, he says, look, I don't really understand how this happened, but this guy was shown paradise. Now, that's probably how I would put it, too, if I believed that paradise is in the future. I'd say, look, I really don't know how this works, but... This guy saw paradise. 
Um, so I think that's partly why Paul is so confused about this, because it doesn't make sense that somebody should see paradise. Fair enough. This paradise has, hasn't even been brought about yet. Um, now, the third heaven, you know, this text says he was taken to the third heaven. Mm. Uh, I'm not 100% sure what that means. I mean, it's not a phrase that appears anywhere else in the Bible. Yeah. But, but, I mean, there is a multiple, there is a reference to multiple heavens in Second Peter. Now, I, I hear some people say, in the Bible, they viewed, you know, he, the universe is multi-layered. There was the earth, and there were these three heavens, and in the third heaven is where God lives. That's false. That was not held as a popular Jewish view at the time, or even an unpopular Jewish view at the time, and it's not in the Bible. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a historic it's historically untrue. That was not a, a view held at the time. Hmm. Uh, but if you, if you look in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and following, uh, Peter says, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, insert a few dots here, because I'm skipping over it, because it's quite long. And then he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And look at what he says there about heavens and earth. <coughs> the heavens and the earth once perished, and there now exists the heavens and the earth that will one day perish as well, mm. and then there will be a new heavens and earth. Well, how many is that? That's three. <laughs> That's three. <laughs> so the third heavens and earth is the new creation that God will create, or the, the way that God will restore things to be. Which one is the eternal one? Well, it's the third one. Yeah. Now, the third heaven is just the sky. It's the sky in the new creation. I'm going to assume that the listener is familiar with the phrase, the heavens and the earth. It just means the sky and the ground. It's, it's, not, it's not anything deeper than that. Mm. That's kind of a strange way to put it, but I didn't write it. <laughs> uh, so you've got this guy who's caught up into the sky, given, as it were, a bird's eye view of the new creation. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. While Peter uses the language of the new heavens and the new earth being replaced with version 3.0, uh, Paul doesn't, <laughs> I, I, I admit. But then again, Paul never spoke of these events with as much clarity as Peter did either. Sure. I mean, Peter goes into a lot of detail there. Paul never does that. It's a speculative solution, I admit. And it might be false. Um, the third heaven is also mentioned in these pseudo pseudopigraphical work that means it was written in the name of somebody who didn't actually write it called the Apocalypse of Moses now in the Apocalypse of Moses it's described as a physical place like actually not up in heaven but a physical place equated with paradise where the angel Michael took the body of Adam and buried it as he awaited the resurrection now, the difficulty with using this as a, as a source for Christian belief is that it was probably written in the first century AD, probably after Paul. 
uh, died. Mm. And it probably, probably got the phrase from Second Corinthians rather yeah. than vice versa. So that's not such a good, uh, thing to use. Now there are a number of, of online pieces written by Christians explaining that the third heaven is a spiritual place out there where God dwells. As I said, that's bunk. It was not a, a view held at the time. It's not a view taught in the scripture. Yeah. So, my suggestion as to what the third heaven refers to is speculative. At least it's got some biblical precedent. Well, and it also, now, seem, it also seems to comport <laughs> with the way that paradise is used. <coughs> That's true, and they they reinforce each other. Yeah. Uh, my major, my second major reply, and I know I'm harping on a bit about this, but I I just find this passage really intriguing. So, but I'll try and be quick. About twelve years ago. This has to do with the way the NIV and other versions translate the passage. About 12 years ago, I purchased a copy of the New Testament translated from Aramaic sources by George Lamza. Now, this is associated with the Aramaic Bible Society, and they make some crazy claims, you know, that the whole Bible was in Aramaic. (laughs) And, you know, that only by getting back to the Aramaic sources can we really get to the truth. Now, that's that's rubbish. But it's still, we we know, for example, that the Peshitta was a very early translation of the Bible in Aramaic. So Aramaic sources are still very helpful. Um, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, I, I only tell you the story to tell you uh, how this thing got my attention. This is how I read this verse in this translation that I just bought. It says, Boasting is not proper, there is no advantage in it, and I prefer to relate the visions and revelations of our Lord. Okay, so far it's pretty ordinary. I knew a man in Christ more than 14 years ago But whether I knew him in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. This very one was caught up to the third heaven. And I still know this man. But whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. How that he was caught up to paradise and heard unspeakable words and so on and so forth. Hmm. Now, I I thought, what? That's (laughs) not what it says. I, I know what this says. And I knew what this verse was supposed to say, so I checked the NIV, which confirmed my previous beliefs. It's supposed to say that Paul knew a man 14 years ago, and that this man was caught up to heaven, and Paul doesn't know if that event was in the body or out of the body. Uh, and then I did something which really shocked me. I checked. I, I, I didn't expect to find this. I first checked the King James Version, not because I prefer it, but because I know it's a very literal translation. And lo and behold, in the very first version that I checked, uh, it agreed with this bizarre translation and it cited up against the NIV. It says in, in the KJV, it says, It is not expedient for me to, for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up to paradise. And I thought, wow, that's nothing like the NIV. Right. Because this isn't talking about whether he experienced going to heaven in the body or out of the body. In the body or out of the body is is describing the way that he knew this guy. Mm. And so I, I did some checking around. Um, what versions did I check? I checked the American Standard Version. It said... Um, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body I know not, or whether out, the, out of the body I know not, God knoweth. Such a one caught up even to the third heaven. It was the same. I checked Young's literal version. 
I have known a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body I have not known, or whether out of the body I have not known. God has known. Such a one was caught away to the third heaven. I began to discover that actually the majority of the older literal translations agreed with this, and that the NIV was wrong. Mm. It Now, the problem, of course, is what on earth does that mean? Sure. Um, because it's it's anything but clear, even in, in English. Uh, I, you know, I, I always feel for the translators. But the text says, whether in the, in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And I think that it, it is fairly clear, at least it appears to refer to the way that Paul knew the guy. It's possible that Paul knows of this person, but he's not sure that if it's someone that he's met in the flesh, so to speak, or if it's a friend of a friend. Now, I don't know what it means. But it's not acceptable to make phrases clear by changing their subject. Sure. Because the NIV hasn't just added words. It's actually changed the subject of phrases. Um, the phrase that referred to the way that Paul knew this guy, the NIV changes it and makes it a phrase that's about how this guy went to the third heaven. Well, that's that's not how you clarify passages. That's, <laughs> that, that, um, I mean, it makes it clearer. It makes it easier to read, but it changes the meaning. Right. But, uh, yeah, so I, I just don't think that we have any good reason to believe that Paul is describing someone's out-of-body experience. So, I mean, I, I know I've waffled on quite a lot there, so let me let me say it very succinctly. Most people believe that Paul was speaking of his Damascus Road experience, which was not an out-of-body experience. Secondly, Paul says this could have been a vision. Third, the phrase, the word paradise, uh, strongly supports that because it's a word that's used in Scripture to refer to a final state of restoration. Fourth is the question of the third heaven. I don't know what that means, but it might offer support for the view that this was a vision of the future. And fifth, um, this doesn't say that a person could have been caught up to heaven out of his body. It says that Paul might have known somebody out of their body, which is very strange, I agree, but that's kind of not my problem. Could it just mean something as simple as whether in person or not? It could be. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the only thing that I can draw from what it might mean. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it's, it's bizarre, but it doesn't mean that someone might have been taken to paradise, but not in their body, only God knows. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. As bizarre as it is, I don't think I, I, th I actually think as, as as bizarre as it is, I, I think it probably makes more sense in a physicalistic uh, um, understanding than uh, than a dualistic one. Or it, you know, I mean, that's not to suggest that dualism is false, but it, but this this passage no, has no bearing on dualism. That's right, because you could have a vision of heaven, even if heaven is a non-material place where you go when you. Well, actually, I don't know. What would it look like if it's not even physical? It doesn't have dimensions. Oh, look, I'm not even going to go there. But the point is, it doesn't It doesn't really weigh in on the debate, I don't think. Agreed. Okay. Well, now, another passage that uses this in-the-body uh, language, similar, you know, uh, apart from the body, is, is another passage that people point to. Um, and it's 2 Corinthians 5, and, and you and I are very familiar with this one, and we've talked about it. Paul writes in that passage... Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, mm. I've heard this passage quoted many times. Anytime I bring this topic up with anybody, this is one of the first that they point to, because it seems that what Paul is saying is that while at home in the body, that is, while alive, 
physically. We are absent yeah. from the Lord. But that once we are absent from the body, that is, having died and shed the mortal coil, as I think a, 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 a hymn puts it, we will be at home with the Lord. Now, doesn't this very strongly suggest an immaterial, disembodied existence in heaven with God? Yeah. This is the best text in the entire Bible, I think, in favor of a dualistic conception of human persons. Uh, because it really sounds like he's actually saying we can live apart from anybody whatsoever and be present with the Lord in their state. Um, now, let me just read the text that's in front of me. I think it's it's a little bit telling but unfortunate that so often people start reading with verse 6. Mm. Because what comes before them, I think, actually puts this verse into context. I mean, he's saying... While we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. So the idea is what I really want, in fact, it says in verse 8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he's, in other words, the state we want is a state without the body. But I think he rules it out if we read, starting with verse 1, where he says, We know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So what he's saying here is that whatever it is I'm desiring, it's not a state of being unclothed. It's not that I want to get rid of this and shed it and live on without it. It's that I want something further. I want to be further clothed upon. Um, I want whatever it is that God has prepared for me and is going to give me and put it, as it were, like a garment over this. The way some people, I think, read being away from the body and at home with the Lord is just like I want to be rid of the body. But I think that the contrast that Paul has set up in verses 1 to 4 is not a contrast between being clothed and unclothed. In fact, he directly says, I don't want to be unclothed. It's a state of being clothed one way and a future state of being clothed another way. And so what that must mean, I think, is that when Paul says that he wants to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, he has to mean he wants to be away from this body. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I mean, he's almost quoting himself from... First Corinthians, in Second Corinthians 5 here, what does he say? He says, not that we would be unclothed, but they will be further clothed, so that is what, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. But what does he say in 1 Corinthians 15? But I'll just get it so we can quote it word for word, because it's almost identical. And yet there, he is unambiguously talking about the resurrection. Yeah. We will, our bodies will be sown corruptible, we will be raised incorruptible, we will be sown mortal, we will be raised immortal. And you know, then death will be swallowed up in victory. You've got the language there of mortality being swallowed up in life. And he says, then we will put on immortality. The language is almost identical. So I think that he's referring back to his earlier comments about the resurrection, saying, look, a time is coming when we won't have this body anymore because we will be transformed, we will be further clothed on from above. And what I really desire is to be you know, done with this state of affairs and to be clothed upon with the new body, you know, the, you know, with immortality and incorruption and so on. I admit that all by itself, if we didn't know what Paul believed about resurrection, 
it would sound like he was talking about dualism. But just because we do know what Paul means elsewhere when he uses that language, I think that verse 8 should be interpreted as a reference to being away from this body, not away from the physical world altogether. I agree. Uh, that's the understanding I've come to have. And actually, I think that you can even start back in, in chapter 4 and find out that it's the resurrection that he's talking about. And I write about this at my blog. But, but let me, let me throw, let me play the devil's advocate and, and, and raise three objections to the understanding that we've just admitted that we share. Um, first, uh, you might recall that when you and I discussed this at Didi's blog, one of the fellow guest authors there argued that in context, what is happening is that Paul has recognized that he is he's he's soon to die, and that what he's longing for he's not talking about what he's longing for to happen you know two thousand years later or more at the resurrection, but what's going to happen at the moment he dies. Um, you know, I, I might also point to Second Peter one fourteen where Paul says the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, mm. uh, suggesting yeah. that Second Corinthians five is absent from the body is a reference to death, not the resurrection. What do you make of this? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in context, I can't see how context means anything other than the text that surrounds this verse. Mm. And and the text that surrounds this verse is what has come immediately beforehand, where Paul you know, overtly says that he's not desiring a state of being unclothed, and also overtly says that what he's desiring is the state of being further clothed. So for someone to say, now, what he's really desiring is setting aside his tent and simply being without one, well, he's already denied that. I mean, it, it seems to me a case of calling black-white. Paul says, I'm not desiring this, and someone comes along and says, well, I think what he's really denying is, what he's really desiring is this after all. Hmm. I, I, I just don't see how you can do that. He says, I don't desire to be naked, I don't desire to be unclothed, I desire to be clothed with immortality, and... And what I desire is to be without this body. And someone comes along and says, well, that must mean he desires to be unclothed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, already, he's tried to set you up so that you don't conclude that. Yeah. You know? So I don't think we should conclude that. Yeah, I would agree. And, and um, you know, even if, even if he is talking about what he longs for to happen once he dies, we've already established that from the physicalist perspective, when we talk about this concerning the thief on the cross, you will die and you will rise immediately from your perspective. And so Paul is talking about what from his perspective is going to happen when he dies. His earthly tent is going to be set aside and he's going to take upon himself the, the heavenly, the, 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 the immortal yeah. body. Yeah, I mean, elsewhere, when Paul is, is thinking about the fact, if I'm, I'm eventually going to die and I'm not going to be here serving the church anymore. And so he's kind of weighing up what's best. He says, look, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is which is better. You know, presumably he means better for me. But it's it's beneficial for you that I hang around so I can do this work. Um, now, as a physicalist, I desire to depart and be with Christ too. Mm. It's, yes. I mean, it's, I mean, and it's just that we differ on our metaphysical explanation of what, how that works. Well, I expect to depart and be with Christ. I just expect that when it happens, I will discover, well, in fact, I think I already know, that a considerable amount of time will have actually elapsed for those who are still alive in the interim. Yeah. Well, so now the, the second objection to what we've said is um, that... The, the, the same guest author that I'm talking about, and I'm leaving him anonymous, um, and, and I think his objections are, are you know, worth bringing up. He, he referred, he, he said that the resurrection body isn't actually a second body. Um, in other words, we don't have two bodies, one now which will be replaced later by another body, but rather that the current body itself 
will be raised from the dead and, and its properties will be changed, not replaced. If that's true, then doesn't Paul's language of being absent from the body demand that we understand it to refer to being disembodied, since to be absent from this body would be to ab be absent from this body even in its transformed state? So this guy's argument is essentially that there is an interim body. No, 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 no. What his argument Sorry. was, what, what his argument was, is that we, there is only one body. Um, it's this body, right. and then it's this body transformed in the future. Its properties are changed, but it's the self-same body is one of the common ways of, of, of being put. So, so if he's talking oh, about... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, theologically, I believe that there is an important sense in which the resurrection body will be the body that I have now, in, in some truthful sense. So in order to be absent from the body, you have to be absent from all bodies, hmm. because there's only one. Yeah. I think it's the way that we talk which is acceptable. I mean... You talk about having a new life because you've quit smoking. It doesn't mean you died and came back to life again. Mm. Are you I mean, even now, if I, you know, if some morbidly obese, unhealthy person uh, had surgery, got into shape, and became healthy, no one would fault them for saying, "I have a new body." Right. Well, no, you wouldn't say, "No, you don't." It's the same one. It's just a lot better than it used to be. But, you know, there's nothing wrong or, or or misleading about talking that way, as long as you have a shared basis of meaning with the person who's speaking. Right. Now, uh, now, I think that the early Christian message was one of resurrection and of, um, you know, of the same body rising again. But with, given the understanding that there will be some sort of radical transformation that takes place. And so no one's going to, no one, no one in, in, in an Orthodox Christian community is going to think, oh, wait a minute, does this mean that um, maybe Paul doesn't think we'll have bodies in the future or, or some weird thing. I mean, the fact that he's he's using language in the first three verses, which is strongly suggestive of being further clothed, um, I, I kind of think seals the deal, that he's talking about a future physical but different state. I mean, when he says, uh, he's talking about a building from God, which is not the building that we now have. Well, wait a minute, doesn't Paul just believe we have one body? Well, yeah, he yeah. does, but... But, yeah, language is flexible. You can talk about having a new body even though it's the same one. Yeah. Uh, it's just that God is going to do something amazing to it in the future. Yeah, it's so radically different than that it's as if it were a different body. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it actually is. Yeah, I would agree. And then, and then, it's, like, it's, it's like the new heavens and the new earth. A lot of people who believe in the new heavens and the new earth believe that it's ontologically the same but made better. Yeah, right. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, whether I believe that is the proper way to understand it or not, many do, and I think that does justice to the text, and, and I think that's the case mm. here as well. Uh, and then that leads me to the third one, which, which uh, again, I think the same guest author at the time made this point, which is that why would Paul have said, I don't want to be, I don't long to be found naked if he didn't think that he could actually be found naked? Oh, no, I don't think that means that Paul believed that he could be found naked, but Let's face it, dualism was not an unknown to these people. I mean, he, you know, a platonic understanding of human nature was very common. And when you hear someone saying, look, um, you know, this tent, in this tent we groan, we're, we're burdened. Well, that's the kind of thing Plato might have said. Uh, and if Plato was saying it, you'd expect that he was talking about being naked and getting out of it and, and being, being a disembodied soul. And, and Paul wants to protect people against the, the possibility of, of, of misinterpreting him that way. Because um, 
if if a if a modern Christian were speaking that way, yeah, if, if he didn't make any reference to nakedness, he just said, "Look, this body is really giving me grief. I can't wait until I don't have it anymore." It would be tempting to understand him as 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 referring to a disembodied soul. Mm. And I don't deny that many in the early Christian community could have believed in such things, because the whole world around them believed in such things. So Paul is saying there, look, I don't want you to misunderstand me as though you think as though I'm talking about that. I'm not. And so I think it was almost necessary for Paul to point this out, whether he was a physicalist or not, just because of the strong likelihood that people would understand him as referring to dualism unless he offered these qualifications and unless he went on to talk about you know, not being unclothed but being further clothed. I want you to understand I'm not talking about getting away from the physical world. Um, I think he needed to do that just because it's it's very easy to misunderstand when you've got all these competing doctrines in the in the world in which they lived. Yeah, yeah, I agree. He wasn't he wasn't saying uh he wasn't talking about something that could happen. He was he was anticipating a misunderstanding of the words he had just spoken and making sure that he's not misunderstood. Yeah. yeah. If I were to go into a um a polytheistic world where they believed in many gods and say, I believe in the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not that I believe in three gods. You know, I would be saying, look, don't think that I mean that. Now, it would be silly for someone to come along and say, ah, well, he must have countenanced the possibility of there being at least three gods. Well, no, not really. Right, I just right. don't want people to think. I just don't want people to think that that's what I mean. Yeah, I, I think that's a great analogy. I'm, I'm glad you thought of that one. Well, so that leaves us with two more that I've got for you. Um, and, uh, you know, the one we just talked about, like you, you think is the, is the strongest. So I'm, I'll be interested to see what you think of these two. The first one is Matthew 10:28. Uh, in which Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, yeah. when when you and I first started talking about this, uh, I challenged you with this verse. Doesn't it seem to suggest that a man has both a body and a soul, the former of which can be destroyed without destroying the latter? Yes, it does <laughs> seem that way. <laughs> okay. Well, why doesn't it? Um, well, I mean... In the range of meanings, the soul is life, which I think is the most common, possibly the most common. Um, and I think that, that there is a sense of life that is intended here. Uh, let me. This, this is in Matthew ten twenty eight. Now, I, I, it's either Luke or Mark. Um, you can follow up and, and find out which who who present the same saying from Jesus, but they say. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but after that they have nothing that they can do to you. Instead, That's Luke. Yeah, Luke, you're right. Fear the one who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into Gehenna, or commonly translated hell. Fear him. Now, I think that those texts mean exactly the same thing. Right. The idea is that what men can do to you has effect only in this life, but ultimately... They don't have power over your life. And this is emphasized elsewhere. You know, it is the Lord who makes alive and brings down to the grave. God has the power of life and death in his hands. So it's like saying, man can kill you, but ultimately, as far as your life is concerned, it's not up to them whether you will live or die. Now, that may, may seem a little strange. That, that, that's fine. But I think that's probably what Matthew means. when Because we don't know exactly how Jesus worded it. Because we've got Luke... You know, wording it one way, and we've got Matthew wording it another. What I think we have to do is look at both of them and say, okay, what point is common to both? What are they? What is the saying supposed to be getting at? Uh, and Jesus would have said something like that. And so, 
that's basically what I think it means. It means that whatever man can do to you is only temporary, but what God can do to you uh, determines the ultimate destiny of your life. Sure, I think that's I think that's yeah. reasonable. And there are people who won't who won't accept that. That's okay. <laughs> well, I will say, and I don't want to you know um, muddy the waters, but I will say that for people who insist. Um, that this is referring to a material body and an immaterial soul. Um, it's certainly those people, many of them would believe in eternal torment in hell, like I do. And yet it says, you know, uh, God is able to destroy both the immaterial soul and the material body, if that's what's being referred to in hell. So, I mean, all of a sudden it would seem like these same people would be forced to accept annihilationalism. Um, Which I do on the basis. Yeah, I think this text teaches annihilationism, but I'm not going there. Fair enough, fair enough. But the point is just that you know um, it, it, they point to this verse passionately in defense of their view, while I think undermining their own view of hell. So it's just yeah. kind of interesting. And in in defense of the way that I've interpreted this this verse, you know, it refers to their life ultimately. The fact is that when a man kills you, he does kill your soul. He does kill your nephesh, your mm. your suke. Um, in the in the book of Acts. And I, I can't get the exact reference off the top of my head, but look up the way the word suke is used. Look, use a concordance, and you'll see that it tells us that the apostles, on a daily basis, risked their suke, their soul. Mm. Now, what could that possibly mean if this verse in Matthew is telling us that man is powerless to kill your soul? Well, I, I have to say that it actually means they were risking their lives, and that the suke can indeed be killed, but eternally and ultimately it's up to God what happens to it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Well, so that leaves us with one more. Um, uh, Luke 16 and the famous story of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to quote this. I'm just going to summarize it to try to make it shorter for my listeners who might not be familiar. But basically, um, in this par- well, in this what some people say is a parable, uh, in, Jesus depicts a rich man and, 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 and a guy named Lazarus. And in life, the rich man doesn't show any mercy, uh, t- to the destitute and suffering Lazarus. And when they die, they're taken to Hades. Lazarus being comforted in the bosom of Abraham, Abraham, whatever that means. And the rich man on the other side of some unbridgeable chasm being tormented. And now, as you'll perhaps recall, I've made two arguments from this passage in the past. First, the author doesn't tell us that this was a parable. Jesus seemingly um, used the names of real people, Lazarus and Abraham and Moses, mm. and attributed words to Abraham, which, if this is a parable, were words Abraham never spoke. And whereas parables are stories which communicate a, a second higher meaning, some don't see such a second meaning in the story. But second, even if this is a parable, I've argued in the past that all of Jesus' parables are reflective of reality, depicting situations which, albeit fictional, nevertheless could have happened. Um, yeah. But if humans aren't conscious after death, this parable depicts a story which is completely devoid of any realism. It's a story which just simply could not happen. So so whether Jesus is giving a historical account of real people who went to Hades or whether this is a, a parable which must therefore be reflective of reality, it would seem that Jesus is saying when people die, their souls remain conscious in Hades awaiting the resurrection either in comfort or in torment. If you don't agree, why not? How do you understand this passage? Yeah. Well, firstly, I think it, it should be treated as though it's a parable. And I, I say that largely because of literary context. I mean, in, in Luke 15 and 16, there's a whole string of parables, one after the other, and this is the last one. Um, now, And all of them begin in more or less the same way. You know, there was a certain man. Um, so I, I, I don't think it, it's important that, that Jesus doesn't say this is a parable, because he doesn't usually say this is a parable. But I, t- I take your point, though. Um, 
it's a parable of events that have no analog in reality. Mm. You know, um, but I actually think it does have an analog in reality. When Jesus told his stories, he drew something from the experience of his listeners. Um, the good shepherd, you know, there were plenty of shepherds there. True. Um, all the various analogies about people gathering crops into storehouses and so on and so forth. As an agrarian society, all these things make sense because the things that the people have daily experience with. Now, one of the other things that people had daily experience with was <coughs> Jewish theology. Uh, in particular, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the way that they taught and the things that they taught were things that uh, first-century Jews in Palestine had experiences with. And what I find interesting, in fact, I was tipped off to this not by physicalist literature, but just by Bible commentaries and uh, biblical studies books about the parables of Jesus, is that just about every commentator, regardless of what they think about hell, regardless of what they think about the afterlife, made some throwaway comment that I didn't quite understand and say, Jesus is taking something from the experience of his listeners. This time he's using a popular story that they would all have known. I thought to myself, what popular story? This is, you know, I didn't, this, not that I didn't believe them, but I, I just didn't know what they were referring to. Hmm. And, and, you know, any, um, well, I shouldn't say any, but most books that deal with parables of Jesus make this comment. Um, so it says that he's taking something from their daily experience, namely a popular story or a folk tale, and he's turning it around and changing it a bit. Uh, now, it took me a while before I actually got to the, the root of the matter, uh, largely delving through some incomprehensibly complicated works on New Testament studies. Um, Joachim Jeremias is the German New Testament scholar who tipped me off to the source of this. Didn't tip me off personally. He's dead as far as I know. But his, his, um, his very... A dense scholarly book on the on the parables of Jesus tipped me off to this, and that is a number of times in the Gospels and in the parables of Jesus, he draws on existing parables, on existing stories that existed within uh, rabbinical Judaism. Now I didn't know this, and of course you wouldn't know this unless you happen to know what stories existed in rabbinical Judaism. Sure. Let's face it, who does? But there is a recurring story of a character named either Majan or Bar-Majan, which means the son of Majan, who was a teacher of the law. He was the hero, naturally, <laughs> in rabbinical Judaism, of course. <laughs> right. uh, but he was, he was a Jewish legal scholar. And he held a great feast. And he alleges that the story of the great feast is just about copied and pasted from the story of a young guy called Bar-Majan, which is, okay, I thought that's not highly significant or controversial, so Jesus used material of his day. I mean, comedians do that all the time. Why, why, not, why not someone like Jesus? But then he says, this story in, in Luke 16 comes from that same story. Because in the story of Bar-Majan, Bar-Majan, the good teacher of the law, unsurprisingly goes to paradise after he dies. Uh, whereas, and I, memory fades because I wasn't thinking about this at the time, I believe it is a tax collector. If it is not a tax collector, it is some other figure who is an outcast in Jewish society who goes to the other place. Mm. <laughs> so, so you've got this teacher of the law going to paradise, a rich teacher of the law, respected by Jewish society and religion, going to paradise. And then, you, oh, no, relaxing beside a fountain or a stream in paradise, some lovely scene. And this other character, some character who is sociologically 
taboo in Jewish society, who is rejected by God in this story, and who goes to this place where he is burning in heat and trying to reach the river, but he is unable to do so. And that sounds a lot... In fact, there's a story very much like that. I think, I think it was the story of Barmajan that found its way into the Palestinian Talmud, which wasn't actually compiled until sometime after the Gospels were compiled. But the material was ancient. Mm. Um, and, 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 and some have even suggested that this story goes back to an ancient Egyptian story. So it was like this recurring theme that people would pick up and use, and they would use it to justify themselves, to put their class in the class of people whom God accepts, and take the sociological or religious outcasts and portray them as the people whom God hates which is such a temptation for all of us, I'm sure. sure. But in the Gospel of Luke in particular, this was one of the most dominant themes in the Gospel of Luke. Any um, any good study of the Gospel of Luke, of its overall themes, will show you, or will at least make reference to the fact that the main theme of the Gospel of Luke is reversal. That God is taking, the, uh, sorry, Jesus takes those whom people consider to be rejected by God or despised or lowly, and he raises them up. And he takes those whom God, who the people suspect are accepted by God and who are righteous and justified in the sight of God, and he shows that actually God rejects them. And what he's doing is he's taking this story and he's turning the whole thing around and saying, look, you guys have got it backwards. Hmm. So I don't think... Now, now, in this way, we can say, yes, Jesus is taking something from the experience of his audience because both this story and the attitudes that it presents were very common. In Jesus' day. And also we read in this story that Jesus... Uh, should I go to this story? Yes, I will. I'll go to the story in Luke chapter 16, in, in verse 14. So just shortly before, not immediately before, but just two verses before. I guess it's pretty much immediately before. In verse 14, just before Jesus tells the story, it says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then he immediately takes the story, which they would habitually use to exalt themselves and to portray their sociological enemies as rejected by God. And he uses the story to show them, actually, you are rejected by God. And those whom you consider to be rejected by God are accepted by God. Hmm. And I don't think that that requires that we believe that any of the details in the story are possible. I think it then becomes something like Aesop's fables, where the story is, is true in the sense that what, it, what it's telling us is very important, and we need to take it on board and, and take it seriously, but that doesn't mean believing that, that everything in the story is true or even possible. I, I'm inclined to agree. It would be different, I think, if there were evidence that Jesus was inventing a story out of whole cloth. I can't imagine him creating a parable out of whole out of whole cloth that is utterly unreflective of reality but on the other hand um taking an existing fairy tale if if that's a fair a fair assessment of of what was uh, extant at the time and turning it on, on its head i don't think there's anything illegit- Ill- illegitimate in 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 him doing so um so and in saying this 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 doesn't prove that jesus disagreed with the story either or it doesn't prove that he disagreed with the theology of the afterlife either it just means that, well, at least there's another rationale for why Jesus would have used the story, even if he didn't accept that theology. 
Right. In other words, uh, we don't need we don't need to believe that the point had anything to do with depicting the afterlife at all, except to say that the the uh, the current mindset um, was the opposite of what is actually true. Not not not, not speaking of the afterlife, but in speaking of who's accepted and who's not. That is what was turned on its head. There was nothing. Right. Yeah. Because that's because that's the role that the story played in their society. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's all I've got. You know, I, I'll say that um, I think I think that the answers are are, are very good ones. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm at this point left <laughs> with very little reason, to be quite honest, except for tradition. Um, to hold on to dualism. I'm not saying I'm giving it up yet, but, but I will, what I will say is this. For, for my, we, we've gone on for probably a good almost two hours now. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to split this up into two or not. Um, but either way, there's a lot of material here. And, and there might be some of my listeners who were tempted to think that the sheer volume of material we've gone over is, uh, is, is an indication that physicalism has got, has got some real problems, you know. Um, but, but actually, I only think that the reason, I think the only reason why there is such a volume of material here is because we've been so inundated with this view that we tend to read it into everywhere where the word spirit or soul shows up. And, and what I've, you know, I'll tell you, and, and this is for my listeners as well, since I talked with you last time, um, when people have been calling me or emailing me or whatever, asking, presenting me with some of these challenges, I've tried to put myself in, in your shoes, or in the shoes of a physicalist, I should say, um, and, 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 and try to guess how I would understand these passages from that perspective. And what I found, surprisingly enough, is that there's not that much of a difficulty in doing so. <laughs> you know? Hmm. Um, so anyway. This is, what I, this is what I said at the close of our last episode. Start viewing reality and viewing scripture as though you were a physicalist. and Just see what problems come up. You might be surprised. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. What do you mean? What what problems come up if you start viewing reality through the eyes of a physicalist? None. Oh, that's <laughs> <the point. laughs> okay. See, I misunderstood your point. Your, your point. That's a good point. Yeah. There's there's very little um, in in experience, and and now I'm beginning to be convinced that there's very little biblically um, that demands uh, a dualistic worldview. So, yeah, this has been good. Um, so I said it last time and I'll say it again and uh, but is you know I've left my listeners just now with what I'd like them to go away with is there anything else that you'd like to just say in closing um just before I, I let you go Um just in, in in closing I mean obviously what we've looked at today is a bunch of texts many people uh, are, uh, that, that many people believe pose problems for do for physicalism now of course the only reason we've been looking at their texts at these texts is because some people think that um and, and as such, I think that even the ones that make a good case against physicalism are exceptional. And we've been deliberately choosing those exceptional texts. Mm. Uh, because. But, but, but the reality is, overall, as I indicated last time, I think the overall largely consistent message of Scripture um, presents us, uh, not just as compatible with, but presents us with physicalism. Mm. Presents us with you know, God creating a good physical creation that is in some way broken, and that God is going to restore. There's no plan B. There's no alternative reality that we live in while God sorts things out. It's just God fixing this place. Yeah. And I think that's the overall message of Scripture, and physicalism best explains that. Yeah. And and I'll and I'll add that um, because we know we're physical, it would seem to me that physicalism <laughs> would be 
the default view and that it would take some really persuasive uh, biblical evidence to to say we're also something else. And in the absence of very explicit evidence, I'm hard-pressed to find reason to say that the default position um, needs anything added to it. Hmm. So, Yeah. As I said, I think the best arguments for for dualism are philosophical ones, yeah. not biblical ones. Um, that's not to say I don't think they're good arguments or they shouldn't be taken seriously, but I think it's worth noting that uh, you have to resort to analytical philosophy in order to find the kind of arguments that a dualist would need because Scripture just isn't going to give them to you. Yeah. Well, and then let me just, I'll, I'll say one last thing for my listeners, too. Um, I say my listeners because I know you probably already agree with this. Regardless of whether dualism or physicalism is the accurate understanding of, of human nature, um, it really saddens me. I don't know if it saddens me or if it concerns me that the most Christians I know have their hope wrapped up in the wrong place. Most Christians I know, um, not even simply because they're dualists, but because I don't think you have to be a physicalist to, to view it in the proper way. Most, most, phys- most people, most Christians talk about how much they long to go to heaven. And I, and most of them aren't talking about the resurrection, even though some people use that language. R.C. Sproul, for example, talks about the resurrection as heaven, but it's clear in context he's talking about the resurrection. Our, our hope is really misplaced if we're hoping for some disembodied existence um, when we're intended to be physical creatures. So my, my hope is that, you know, my, my hope is that my listeners will go away from this, at least being open to your view as I am. Um, but, but, more so, I hope they recognize that um, the, the the biblical uh, where, where we're told biblically to have to place our hope is definitely in the, in the resurrection, in eternity, in the in the new heavens and new earth. It's not in uh, in in Hades or, or whatever. So that's my feeling anyway. Yeah, let me just close, if I may, please. By, by, by reading a brief passage of scriptures, just a couple of verses from Romans chapter eight, beginning at, at verse twenty-two. This is not an argument for dualism, but I think it really is a kind of Oh, sorry, for physicalism. But it sums up the way that a Christian physicalist views reality. He's, the Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen, oh, sorry, hope that is seen, is not hope. Who hopes for what he already has? Hmm. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently. Yeah, amen. I agree. Well, thanks so much for being here tonight. Um, I'll look forward to having you on in the future um, to maybe talk about some other controversial topics. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long one. <laughs> it has been, but I've enjoyed it, and I hope you have too. So I absolutely have, yeah. All right, take care, Glenn. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed the interview. More importantly, I hope you feel as though I presented a thorough and comprehensive challenge to Glenn's view, even if you still disagree with it. I'm sure that many of you don't find Glenn's answers as satisfying as I do, and perhaps you might have pushed back and pressed him further on some of his answers. I'd like to issue an open invitation to any listener who finds physicalism untenable and thinks he or she can challenge the view in a way that I couldn't that I could not. If you think you can do so, I'd like to have you on to respond to Glenn's points in a, in a fashion similar to this interview. So contact me at theapologetics at hotmail.com or on the Theapologetics Facebook page if you would like to appear in a future episode to present your case. 
In the meantime, I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then... (laughs) 